Hey, my name is Ryan Smith. I'm the associate pastor here at Crosspoint. And on behalf of our church, I want you to know how excited we are that you are here with us. We are praying that the Lord will draw you to himself and that the spirit would move in you and through you uh, from the message that you are about to hear. While we believe that God can and will speak to you through this teaching, make no mistake about it. Uh, this is not a replacement for having a fellowship with the church, which is the bride of Christ. Hebrews speaks specifically uh, to the importance of not forsaking the gathering. This is very, very crucial in the life and journey of the believer. And so we hope to see you very soon at those gatherings. So we want to, together, as a church body, lift high the name of Jesus. And may the Lord bless the reading and teaching of his word. background music makes me feel like I'm playing like Super Mario Brothers or something. I don't know what it is. Just that little doo -doo. Anyway, let me get that situated. Uh, if, you, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn uh, to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 uh, is where we will uh, be at this morning or kind of be at. We're going to be all over the place, but that's kind of a launching pad. Uh, and as you're flipping there, a couple of things. Um, hopefully you picked up one of these. I know Ryan mentioned our reading plan. Uh, and so, anyway, if you'll pick up that, you can follow along here. Uh, my wife is like a uh, check person, so check it off the list. And she was disappointed with me that we didn't put check boxes on this one, uh, so she could check it off as she went. So I apologize if you're a check check the box person. Uh, but anyway, if you'll grab that, uh, you can also follow along on social media each morning. Uh, Daniel uh, will post uh, what passage. Uh, we're reading. Uh, you can also find it on our website right there on the current series page. So there's uh, three different ways that you can get that. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, so the last week, John started us in a new series called Prepositions, where we're looking at the prepositions that accompany uh, salvation and understanding uh, really uh, what, what it means to be saved, how we get saved, and really breaking down uh, more uh, when we think about the word saved, it becomes very generic uh, or almost abstract for us today. Yeah, we're saved. Well, what exactly does that mean? And in Romans chapter 11, you don't have to flip there. I'm just going to go up on the screen. Uh, this is what Scripture says. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. 
For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. I, I always try to be upfront and real honest with you about my motives in preaching the specific sermon series. I don't want to just preach a series because they sound catchy or, or things like that. I want to preach something for, for reasons. And so uh, the first reason why I want us to do a series on the doctrine of salvation, uh, number one is so that we, so it leads us to a place of doxology, which is a a uh, fancy way of saying worship. It leads us to a place of worship, which is exactly what Paul is writing here, because Paul just got through unpacking the beauty of the gospel from creation to Christ and further. And so he gets to this point and goes, man, how, 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 what are the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God? How unsearchable is his, his, his judgments, inscrutable his ways? Who can even pay him back, right? And for from him, through him, and to him are all things. To, to him be the glory. So the main reason why I want us to do a, a study through the doctrine of salvation is number one is to, for, for worshiping God for how beautiful of a plan he has written out and for allowing us to be a part of that, for allowing to incorporating us into his great master plan. I think we sing songs like he made a way where there's no way, where there was no way. He makes seas into highways. We don't really fully grasp what we're singing, the mystery and the profound miracle of salvation. And man, God deserves so much worship and glory because of his beautiful plan. The second reason why I want us to walk through this series of, or this, of the doctrine of salvation is for a better understanding what we mean when we say we're saved. The third reason is for to be a better, that we could become a better presenter of the gospel. I know the more that I studied the doctrines of the salvation and, and, and the, the different beliefs and things, I myself, I hope I become a better presenter of the gospel, more comfortable with the gospel. But here is the, the fourth reason. And John made mention of this uh, last week, and it's that uh, to give us a foundation of, of, of how can I say, of, of objective truth in light of subjective, subjective feelings. And what I mean by that is, man, we live in 2020. I'm, I'm tired of talking about 2020, ready for 21 to get here. And, we are, and I can't tell you how many times I said, we feel this way in 2020. And we feel that. And so what happens is when we're walking through things, we begin to be super subjective about how we see God, how we try to, try to interpret things. And so when we go to subjective feelings, we, we land in so many different places. We, we can't trust our feelings. My, if, I'm, if I'm living life, I things that are subjective, it just depends on what, how I woke up that day. If I woke up in a good mood, it's going to be a good day. If I woke up in a bad mood, it's going to be a bad day. If I, if it, whatever. But to, to provide us some objective truth, and here's why I want us to go there. I've been very upfront and honest with you, maybe too honest for some pastors, kind of the journey I went through uh, this time last year of just of despair, doubt, even questioning my own relationship with the Lord and, and things like that. And here's what I found myself going back to over and over again and still to this day. It's the doctrines of the gospel. It's the doctrines of scripture, objective truths. Because my mind was so subjective at times that I couldn't trust my own thoughts. However, God has given us his objective truth. Listen to me. In times of distress, in times of struggle, when the enemy is whispering words of discouragement, saying, this is, you're not who you think you are. You're, you're a liar. There's no reason for you to be encouraged. Listen to me. It is at that point that we don't go to things that, that we hold on to, but we go to the things that hold on to us. 
And that is the doctrine of the gospel. That is the doctrine of God's truth is that in those moments, whenever everything seems so uncertain, God has revealed his certain word and it holds on to me. I don't hold on to it. It holds on to me. So what what scripture says, what God says about himself, what God says about me, even though I may not like it, it is true. What God says about, what the gospel says about me is true regardless of how I feel, regardless of how I interpret life's going on. This is objective truth. So my intent in going through this is to give us some objective truth. In a world that's always changing and uh, we don't know what tomorrow is going to look like, man, the word of God as Isaiah writes, it, it remains forever. The grass withers, flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And it is God's spoken word. And so therefore, we cling to it. This morning, we are on grace alone. Grace alone is the, the John started us with the scripture as our final authority last week. This morning, we're talking about grace alone. When I say the word grace, there is not a, a lack of grace talk in, in church circles. There is not a lack of we all are thankful for grace, right? And I put that because we don't maybe we don't know exactly what we mean when we say grace. We just know that it's a good thing to talk about that is that that's how we got saved and that's that's that. And so grace, I, I fear grace. Grace has become kind of abstract in Christian circles. And when, when we think about the word grace, what do we mean by grace? And what do we mean by grace alone? What is grace? The Bible speaks to different kind of kinds of grace, if you will. And really, they're this morning, boil down to two. One is what we call common grace. Uh, is God's per, pers- per, pers- preserving, I can even talk this morning, preserving of the earth. Every human being experiences some sort of grace, right? Like, like matter of fact, go back to the garden. God tells Adam, if you, eat it, you can eat anything you want to except for the tree of knowledge, good and evil. And the, as when you do, surely in that day you will die, right? And well, God doesn't kill him. He kicks him out of the garden. Uh, God's a bad God, kicks him out of the garden, whatever. But he saves it, he spares his life. And from that point forward, all humans that are born experience a certain form of grace that we call common grace. Uh, we, we can experience believer or, and, or non-believer can experience love. Maybe not the love that God calls to, but we can all experience some type of love. We have, uh, we have breath in our lungs. Uh, we can wake up and live this day. There's a sense of grace that is a common grace that all people experience. But the, the grace that the reformers and the grace that we have in mind specifically is saving grace. A, a specific special grace, a saving grace. When I say the word saving grace or the words saving grace, I don't just mean like when you say a prayer and God gives you grace that you get saved. When I say saving grace, I'm talking about from the entrance to the exit. I'm talking about from the beginning. I'm talking about to the end. I'm talking about all parts of the Christian life is, is grace alone. All of salvation is grace alone from justification to glorification. And from, from the birth to the, the, the fullness of what God has called us to be, from the beginning to the end, is grace alone. And so when the Bible authors are talking about salvation, they're not just talking about this, this one time that we, we heard a sermon and we felt bad about our sins, and so therefore God gave us grace and he saved us in that. 
That's it. That's the, that's the sum of my Christian life. No, when the gospel talks about, when scriptures talk about grace, it's not just the beginning. Listen to me. I need grace and grace alone is what justifies me before the Lord. Grace and grace alone is what calls me to the Lord. Grace and grace alone is what sanctifies my life in walking with the Lord. Grace and grace alone is what gives me the faith to be obedient to God. Now, grace and grace alone is what allows me to be the husband that God's called me to be. But the scripture says to husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Man, that is impossible. Y'all. Apart from grace and grace alone, can I do that? Apart from grace and grace alone, can I father my children the way that God's called me to? Listen to me. And by grace and grace alone, one day I will exit this place called earth into my heavenly home with Christ. Grace and grace alone from the beginning to the end. So when I say saving grace, I'm not just talking about this one moment in my life where I said a prayer. I'm talking about the day that I'll when I become from, when I move from death to life to the eventually when I get to go to glory, that's saving grace. If we thought about a definition of grace, if I were to ask you what's your definition of grace, if you've been in any kind of church history at all, you may would say that's our, that's our unmerited favor. Right? We say that word and there's, that's, there's nothing wrong with that definition of grace. The issue with that definition of grace, I say there's nothing wrong. It's right, but here's the, the side note to it, is that when we talk about grace, specifically just an unmerited favor, it speaks to more of an attitude of God towards us, the way he feels about us. There's this unmerited favor, if you will, but at times it can even give the thought of, of God being passive. Like he sees our sin, but there's some reason he likes it. So he just kind of, he kind of passes over it. He looks away, right? So there's this, this picture that if we're not careful, this unmerited favor, we can give this picture of God being passive towards sin and passive toward our rebellion. The other definition could be the active outworking of God's unmerited favor in the church and in the life of the believer. That grace isn't just this passive thing. And we walk through scripture, what we see is that grace isn't just passive, isn't just God looking away, but it's actually God's active outworking of his unmerited favor. It's actually God being active. It's God doing something. It's God stepping in, not passive. Look at all the way to the first sin. Look at Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve sin. They realize they're naked in their own self-righteousness and not knowing what's going on. They what make themselves fig leaves to cover their nakedness. They were in them, their own attempts were trying to cover what sin had done in their life, right? Not that sin made them naked. It just made them aware that they were naked. So they tried to cover that up. God comes in and he obviously, he speaks judgment on all things. But then before he kicks them out of the garden, what does he do? He gives them clothing from animal skin. And me and you have this, I know I have this picture of like this fur coat that you buy at whatever. No. I mean, this, just think about Adam and Eve at this moment when God killed an animal, when he put this raw, bloody hide on their skin, and there was probably blood everywhere, and they, they were covered in this. And what is this? This is God uh, actively stepping in and giving them grace in the midst of their disobedience. Listen to me. Grace is not passive. God acts upon in his grace. He has acted uh, toward us. We see it from Adam and Eve. We see it in that covenant he made with Abraham in Genesis 15. And when God tells Abraham to go on this mountaintop and, and prepare this, really what Abraham thought he was going to be signing a contract that day. If you weren't here a couple weeks ago, we talked about this and what would happen in Old Testament terms if I was going to sign, if me and 
Jeremy were going to go into contract with one another, what we would do is we'd take these animals, we would split them in half, and we would kind of make a, like a lane. We would face them towards one another, and whether I or both of us would walk through it, and whenever we're walking through this, we are signing a contract to one another saying, if I don't fulfill my side of this contract, then be to me as these animals. Man, aren't you thankful we just have to sign a line today? We don't have to do anything crazy like that. They can come get your money and give you the collections, but they're not going to take your life. Or anything. But anyway, and so that's how they signed contracts that day. Well, here's Abraham. He sets this stage and he thinks he's the one that's going to have to walk through this, this little path. He's going to be the one signing the contract. But scripture teaches us that God himself is the one that walked in the middle of this contract as if saying, be unto me. If, if, if my relationship, my covenant with Abraham is not based on Abraham's obedience to me and his performance for me, it will, I will see it. It through. I will see it done. Move from Abraham and go to the, the, the sacrificial system that he sets up through Moses. Listen to me, first of all, in that it wasn't man trying to figure out his way to get to God. No, God's the one that set this system up. God said, this is how you're going to do it. This is how you're going to be in communion with me. And listen to me, it was always God stepping down. The year by year, there would be an animal sacrifice, this blood, this grossness, this active thing, if you will. Then that culminates in the person of Jesus. When Jesus became man, we see grace personified. And he walks on this earth. John calls him the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. Then he gets nailed to a cross, beaten, bloody. Listen to me. Grace doesn't sound passive, turning the other way. Right? He gets beaten and he's bloody and he hangs to a cross and eventually dismisses his spirit and he's placed in a tomb. Listen to me. Sin is violent. It's lethal rebellion against God. But listen to me when I say this. Grace is God's violent, raw, bloody response. So we have this picture that grace, we... I am, I say we, I am guilty. And when I say words of grace and I sing about God's grace, I don't see how, how costly grace was. No, grace isn't just this passive, abstract, feely good statement. It's not just feely good word. No, it is bloody, it is raw, and it is God's response to our sinfulness and of who he is. So when we talk about grace, we're not talking about some abstract common grace. We're talking about saving grace. And the saving grace is God's activity towards man, not man's activity towards God. It is God intervening. It is God stepping in. It is in our, man, it is in, it's in our rebellion and our hard-heartedness and our hard-headedness and all that, that God stepping in and intervening on our behalf. Whenever Martin Luther and the reformers began with this grace alone and faith alone and scripture alone and Christ alone for the glory of God alone, uh, the necessity of these words is not what they were going after. The, the Rome was in those days in the Roman Catholic Church, they wouldn't have had a problem saying with the necessity of grace and the necessity of faith and the necessity of Christ, the necessity of scripture and the glory of God. The necessity isn't what they were after. It was uh, the sufficiency of these things. 
the sufficiency of grace and the sufficiency of faith and the sufficiency of Christ. That's why they added the word alone to it. And that's what drove them because in the 16th century, Rome had added or replaced to, to, the, to grace and grace is in view. They had added to or replaced it. And we really see it, man, if you, if you follow Martin Luther, if, if you watch that video that we, or that, that, that documentary that we uh, put out this week or, or linked this week, you would have saw this or pieces of it. Uh, in in Octo- October 10th, 1510, Martin Luther made his way from Germany to Rome, some 630 miles by foot, armed in his monk cloak. And he walked 630 miles by foot. He gets to what was called the Holy Stairs. Uh, there and what people would do, they wouldn't walk up these stairs. These stairs in Rome, uh, they said that these were the same stairs that Jesus ascended whenever he went before trial at Pontius Pilate. He would, uh, he would, he walked up these steps, and then after he turned away, that he walked down these steps. And actually, last year they reopened them. If you want to go do crawl up them, but what they would do is that. So Martin Luther walked 630 miles over the Alps, by the way, 630 miles to this stairway to get on his knees and crawl up these steps, these 28 steps. And a matter of fact, it says that there's pieces that, that they told him, this is actually Jesus's blood. And so when they would go down, they would actually kiss these pieces of blood as they would go up and they would get up to the top of this steps and there would be a guy standing there with a bucket. And they, at that point, Martin Luther would take some coins and drop it in this thing. And then the guy, the, the guy would hand him a certificate and say, here's your certificate of indulgences. This is good for you, it's good for your, for, for your family members. And Martin Luther that day looked at this and go, but what if it's not? What if it's not? What if this isn't? What if, what, what if it isn't? What if this indulgence that you sold me, what is it? And this is what I have come to believe, not only in the Reformation, were the, were the reformers, if you will, seeking to see gospel clarity when it comes to salvation, but how to have assurance. Because he was doing all the right things, right? He was doing all the right things. And, but what if this indulgence wasn't enough? Because what the Catholic Church was doing is they were saying that God gives grace for the good work, to good works. And so what happens if I don't do enough good works? Is there something else? And so the reformers came and said, just like we talked about last week with Scripture and Scripture alone, the, 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 the Rome or the Catholic Church in that day wouldn't have said Scripture wasn't good. It just says Scripture and, and the Pope. And if, if Scripture doesn't make sense, that's what the Pope says is what's right. They wouldn't say Scripture, <coughs> sorry, they would say Scripture and the Pope or Scripture and the councils. They wouldn't say Scripture and Scripture alone. The same thing with grace. They wouldn't say grace wasn't necessary. They would say just grace and, or grace if. And when we put those clauses on there, where is the assurance? The reformers were, and when we see the word reform, it isn't that they were creating something new. They were wanting to return to what God had already written. In Ephesians chapter two, <coughs> verses one through 10, this is what 
we'll see, uh, we see these prepositions. Let's just read one through 10. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom you all once lived in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love in which he loved us, see if you can catch these five souls, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive with Christ. By grace you've been saved uh, and raised us up uh, and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved, what, through faith, this is not of yourselves, uh, this is not of your doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, that no man may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for the good works in which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In this, this series, we're using this sentence. You've seen it in the, on the screen. And it's God being for us or becoming for us forever and our being made alive is by grace alone and Christ alone through faith alone for the glory of God alone according to scripture alone. What I want us to help us this morning is understanding that sentence. God becoming for us forever and our being made alive and then we're gonna talk about is by grace alone. Understanding the sentence that we're using is this. First of all, man has a big issue, and this is what really made John Martin Luther, and, I, and it wasn't just Martin Luther, but these other guys really wrestle with salvation. First of all, man's problem is outside. Romans chapter three, verses nine and 10 says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? Not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. <laughs> Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 5.9, since therefore we now have been justified by his blood, more, much more shall we be saved by, I'm sorry, by him from the wrath of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. <clears throat> First Thessalonians chapter one, verses nine and 10. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. How you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who, check this, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus in his own words <clears throat> says, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Here's the first problem that you and I have and why we have to understand this. We stand guilty before God and we're subject to his wrath. Say, Justin, that's not good news. Don't tell me. You, we all, we stand guilty before God and we're subject to his wrath. But here's the bigger issue than that. And obviously, that's a big issue. But here's a bigger issue. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, and once you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the year, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom you all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, and were by nature children of wrath. So we, we understand that, but it gets worse. First Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 
It says the natural, follow me here, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are followed to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Check these words. Indeed, it cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. Here's the second thing. We are dead in sin, therefore we're despondent to God and his will. Not only are we, do we stand guilty before God and we're subject of his wrath, but scripture says we're dead in sin, so therefore we, we're despondent. We do not accept. We are despondent to God in, uh, and his will. So <clears throat> is there any hope for man? Because scripture teaches that I'm, man, I'm an object of God's wrath. And I cannot respond to the things of God on my own. I am dead in my sin. I am despondent. So is there any hope? This is how Luther asked and began to ask in 1515, how can man be right before a righteous God? And this thought, this turmoil of, Man, I, I, as a human being, when I'm born, I stand guilty and an object of God's wrath, and I am dead, and there's nothing in me that will make me turn to God. I am in a predicament. This isn't original to Luther or the Reformers. This is Pauline teaching. This is in the Scripture. This is what the Reformers were trying to get us to, a rediscovery. Let's go back to what the Scripture is saying, right? But even past Paul, there was other guys who raised up uh, and began to preserve this teaching, right? And I wasn't re- really a whole lot familiar with these guys. I heard their names, but not really how God used them. Matter of fact, actually, I, I forgot to do this. Uh, speaking of God, worshiping God, the doxology of studying, stuttering, studying this series and doing this series is how God, not only in Scripture's beautiful plan, but how he preserved it uh, through the Reformers and even before that. Uh, check out this timeline. This is from, if you're interested in a uh, another podcast. I don't know if you're podcast people or not, but there's some guys out of New Albany, Mississippi, uh, and their they're, they're, they're ministry is called Media Gratia. Uh, Media Gratia, G-R-A-T-I-A. Uh, and uh, they have a podcast called Behold Your God. Uh, but this uh, last year they did this timeline. And so check out God's orchestrating things in this moment, right? In 1455, the Gutenberg printing press is invented, making books available, affordable for the very first time. The Gutenberg press allowed for <coughs> information to spread cheaply and quickly before the printing press, like this print press that can mass produce things. Uh, it was too expensive to buy a book. And so that's how Rome kept their power is because they had it and only them could interpret it. Hey, in 1516 is whenever Luther got his first hands on a German print Bible. And listen to me, a year later is when the Reformation happened. There's something happens whenever the word of God gets in the people's hands. And so anyway, in in 1455 is whenever this printing press uh, is invented. In 1473, Copernicus, uh, who discovered that the sun, not the earth, is the center of the solar system, is born. So just why is that important? We begin to explore. In 1492 is when Christopher Columbus sells the ocean blue. In 1496, William Tyndale was born, who becomes an incredible Bible translator and mass producer. 
1501 is when Luther uh, begins university, and in 1505 he, he joins an uh, Augustine uh, Augustine uh, monastery. Uh, and 1513 through 1516 is when Luther began the spiritual agony over the question, how can man be made right? And then Reformation Day, October 31st, 1517, is whenever Martin Luther uh, posted 95 theses onto the door of the church in Wittenberg, and then we began the Protestant Reformation. In 1520, here's another podcast for you if you're taking notes. Uh, the Legionnaire Ministries uh, began a new podcast yesterday called Luther in Real Time, where they're taking each day, like yesterday, 500 goes a year yesterday is whenever Luther received his his papal bull. The word bull is like a... Uh, a request or a summons that the that that he he received a summons uh, from 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 the Pope there uh, to for for Luther to uh, recount his teachings. John may mention this a little bit. So he gets this bull, uh, and he has sixty days to recount his his teachings and what he's saying and burn his books. Instead of burning his books, you know what Luther burned the papal bull. The thing that the Pope sent him, he said, I'm not burning my books. I'm just going to burn, burn this thing right here. But like, he was, man, Luther was angry. Uh, he was, but anyway, he, he had boldness. But anyway, so that's neither here nor there. <clears throat> In 1521, January 1521, was Pope, uh, the Pope excommunicates Luther. 21 is a diet of worms whenever Luther is declared a heretic. Uh, crazy thing happened whenever he was headed back from here. His friends uh, kidnapped him and kept him in hiding for 11 months. During that time, he translated the New Testament into German. So how was God ruling over all of these things? First of all, we see this in the realm of academia. Ad fontes means, which was a big, big thing into the 16th century, meant go back to the sources. So even in education, the push was to go back to the sources. So now you see it happening. And it is a call to read the original source, the first text. We're able to go back to the scripture and study its original language. The second way that God was ruling over all these things is the age of discovery. Columbus landed on the New World. Copernicus showed us that we're not at all the center of the universe. And the Gutenberg Press circulated knowledge and information to common people. <clears throat> Third, we see God's rule in the social realm. Prior to the bubonic plague, it is estimated the world's population was 400 million. But that plague took out about 75 million lives. These events sobered and turned men's heart to eternity and the frailty of human life. Fourth, we see God's rule in the political realm. There was an utter inability of the Roman Catholic Church to enforce its will on all regions of Europe once it was able to do. Listen to me, out of all these realms, we see God's preservation of his gospel message. I just thought that that was encouraging. Anyway, Martin Luther was not the first one to really begin to think about this. In the fourth century, there's a guy named Augustine. Some of you may have heard of Augustine. He wrote Confessions of St. Augustine or The City of God. And really what he boiled down to was the restlessness of the human heart. Uh, if, you, if you read Augustine, he, he talks about how restless the human heart is, specifically until it finds rest in God, that ultimately man left to himself. Augustine understood that he would always turn in on himself. So man's biggest need was God. But man's biggest problem is that because of man's failure and his depravity, he would never turn to the one thing that could satisfy him. He would constantly turn into himself. He would constantly go from relationship to one addiction, to one addiction, to one thing, to one thing, to try to feel this void. He knew that Augustine knew that God must be, must condescend, bring himself down to the level of human beings in order to make himself known and known to them. 
In the 12th century, a guy named Thomas Aquinas, who we don't talk a lot about or we don't talk good about him because he's the one that really began to talk about transubstantiation of communion. However, he was very instrumental. The God used him instrumentally to hold on to the doctrine of grace. He followed on the hills of Augustine with the impossibility of a man to fix his own deadness in the state before God. But more, he talked in more philosophical terms, talking about causes and why what man's cause was to glorify God. But because the, a man's fall, his operating system has turned haywired, where instead of turning to the thing that could for him, he would turn to himself. And he would say this, in order to man to be saved, then something outside of him would have to come into operation. Aquinas said this about God's love, that God's love is not reactive, it's creative. God's love creates in us what he desires. When you and I love something because we first observe it to be lovely and then we devote our attention to it, well, God's love saw something that he loved already and in turn acted upon it to make it lovely. That's from Aquinas. Both spoke of a unilateral move of God to man. Now entered the 1500s and you have this fellow named Martin Luther who is seeking assurance and he understands the deadness and the, the issue in his own heart. Man, man, Luther, he, like I said, he was, he was angry. He was agitated all the time. And the more he tried to hang on to his own flesh's ability to maintain and, and find assurance and salvation, the more agitated he became to eventually he just began to wrestle with this. And it was really bad that whenever he actually became a priest after he left, matter of fact, he was an Augustinian monk. So he, he thankfully God had given him the teachings of Augustine who talks about I'm probably boring you, but just follow me for a moment. Thankfully, that's the monastery he became. So he was exposed to the teaching of Augustine. So you see God. Anyway, so he, after that, he actually became a priest. And the priest was forced to administer mass, which the mass would be the re-crucifying of the Lord in the presence of the people and forgiveness of sins. Martin Luther, a man, he, he, he struggled with this that day. He was so nervous and he was agitated. His dad was going to be there and his dad was already disappointed with him because he wasn't going to be a lawyer. And now he wants to be a priest. And there he totally makes a mockery. And he makes a mess of himself there administering mass. And he, he, just, he, just, he can't take it anymore. And in 1513 through 1516, he begins to wrestle with salvation. And the final straw was whenever a dude named Tetzel began to try to sell him indulgences with his little crazy lines, and it was ultimately actually to build church property up. Then eventually he declared war on Rome because Luther knew Luther and knew there was nothing he could do to find assurance within himself. I would argue that one of the biggest reasons for the Reformation was, yes, to rediscover the scripture teaching, but a fight to find insurance. How can a man or a woman be assured of his salvation? How can he find assurance that God is for him and that he can be made alive? And it must be something objective outside of man. It's a unilateral position. So here's the question to pose this morning. That's a lot of introduction. Here's the question to pose this morning. Is there a way, because what's our predicament? We stand guilty, sinful before God as objects of his wrath. So is there a way that God could become for us forever instead of against us? And the second question is, is there a way that man can be made alive from the dead? Is there a way? Can a man be justified? Can a man be regenerated? The answer is, they said there's the five souls, grace alone, on the basis of Christ alone, through faith alone, for the glory of God alone. This morning we're talking about grace 
alone, grace and grace alone. John talked about scriptures, uh, scripture alone, meaning scripture has the final authority. It is as is sufficient and it is clear. So therefore we must go to the scriptures in order to see grace and grace alone. How can man be made alive and how can God become before us? It is by grace and grace alone. We've already talked about Adam and Eve. We've talked about the Abrahamic covenant. We've talked about the sacrificial system. Here's a good one, number six. Not only, not, not only in, in the story of creation, in the story of covenant, in the story of the sacrificial system, but even the prayers in the Old Testament push, showed us God's grace, God's acting upon us. Number six, 24 through 26, a song we've been singing a lot lately. May the Lord bless you and keep you and, make his, make the, Lord, and the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Let the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That is a picture of grace. That is God, the one that's doing the blessing. It is God doing the keeping. It is the Lord who's making his face shine upon and being gracious. It is the Lord to lift up his countenance upon you. It is the Lord, even in the Old Testament, that we see grace. Grace in the New Testament is personified in Jesus. In Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 25, we see this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. You'll see actually three of the five solas here. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Check that word right there. So what's our issue? We stand as objects of God's wrath and we're dead in our sin. We're despondent to the things of God. Unless God does something to us and in us, then we have no hope. So there's the forward as propitiation by his blood, which means that he sat, God satisfied his own wrath through the blood of his son. To be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It says we're justified by his grace. And it is a gift, which means it's not earned and it's not merited or even deserved. What, what Paul is saying here is that we make no contribution or addition to salvation. Ephesians 2, we read it earlier, 4 through 10, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love in which he loved us, even when we were made alive, even when we were, <coughs> sorry, Dead in our trespasses, what did he do? He made us alive. So you've seen it so far already, our two predicaments. We stand as object of God's wrath and we're dead, despondent to the things of God. So what did God do? We see in grace that Jesus became the propitiation, the satisfier of God's wrath. And here he's made us alive with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show them as were riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. For this is not of your own doing, but it is a gift of God, not a result of works, lest no man shall boast. What does Paul teach us here? First of all, that God made us alive. He made us alive in Jesus he raised us by his grace. What raised us? What made me alive? It wasn't that I laced up my bootstraps. It wasn't that I got, it was by grace I've been made alive. And so my predicament that I'm dead and despondent before God, that God by his grace will make me alive. It's the example of that is Lazarus. Lazarus didn't just all of a sudden say, I think I'm going to wake up. No, by God's voice, by Jesus' voice, raised Lazarus. Lazarus then got up and walked. 
The essence of grace here is that God does what corpses can't do and raise themselves by grace. And check out how he writes this, verse 8. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. What is he teaching here? What what precedes faith? Grace. For grace is the instrument of faith. He says, for by grace, you've been saved through faith. That that grace, listen to me, the first fruit that grace produces is faith. That's what we see in Ezekiel in the doctrine of regeneration, right? That God takes us, takes his heart of stone out of us and gives us a heart of flesh. And that's the work of regeneration, making us alive. And at that point, I believe on Jesus. I have faith in Christ. It's not from you or from me. Then he says, you're created for good works, not by good works. <clears throat> in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, a familiar passage Paul writes, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Grace here is the decisive cause in who Paul is. He said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. That grace preceded his becoming. We see works listed in here, that works abound, that are empowered by grace. But Paul says, it's not I. What does he say? Grace and grace alone. Grace has made me who I am. Grace is sufficient. If we add to this, we mix it. We, if we mix, it, mix this up, we deny grace its power. <laughs> Second Corinthians 9 and 8, For God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times you may abound in every good work. What we see is that grace gives us all sufficiency in good works. <laughs> Romans chapter 11, verses 5 and 6 so, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Don't let the word chosen freak you out. I said it out loud. The word chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, sorry, if it, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, it would no longer be grace. It's the essence of grace. Grace wouldn't be grace if something was added to it. Romans chapter 9, verses 11 and 12 <clears throat> though they were not yet born, yet born, this is Jacob and Esau, even though they were not yet born and had nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told that the older will serve the younger. I'm not going to try to explain away Romans chapter 9. Paul doesn't even try to explain away Romans chapter 9. But what he's teaching us here is that but salvation is based on, is because of him who calls. Not even, not, not things that are done, not even prior knowledge to who God knew we would be or who we wouldn't be. So what's the sum, summary of that? By grace alone, if you're taking notes, they're gonna come up on the screen. God's electing work, <clears throat> which means choosing his people before creation was based on grace alone, not on any unforeseen acts of any kind. God's atoning work, means propitiating his own wrath, was based on grace alone, not by any merit of ourselves. God's regenerating work, which making us alive, is by grace alone, not by any contribution. God's sanctifying work, which means to transform us, is decisively by grace alone, not by our efforts of holiness. So we started with this question, how is there a way that man can be made alive 
And is there a way that God could become for us forever instead of against us? And here's the answer to that question. By God's grace alone, spiritually dead sinners who are under the holy wrath of God, from God are redeemed by the death of Christ and made alive in Christ so that God is for them forever and not against them. I say all that and you say, so what? What does that have to do with me in 2020? Some of you, you checked out when I started talking about Augustine. That's fine. So what does that mean to me? Ephesians chapter one, verse seven says this. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Here's the good news I wanted to share with you this morning, that grace and grace alone is what saves you. And grace isn't something that you do on your own. It is God's intervening. It is God acting upon. It is God stepping in. It's not grace and or grace if. Grace is God's undeserved favor towards sinners. Grace alone means that God is the initiator of this relationship in response to what is true about himself. So what does that mean for me? He alone gets the credit for this story. Man, if the message of grace doesn't leave you to a place of man, how unsearchable are his ways. To him, from him, and through him be all glory forever and ever. That God will allow us in. God alone gets the credit. The second thing is this, <clears throat> that his grace isn't limited to one kind of person. It's not attracted to anything in me. Hey, newsflash for you know why you got grace? It wasn't because grace was attracted to anything in you. What does that mean? It flows wherever it wants. That the grace of God flows wherever it wants to. I am not the one who says it can go here and I build a dam over here to divert it this way. That is not what we do. Grace goes wherever it desires. Third thing, <clears throat> the one who knows their desperate need of grace is the biggest giver of grace. I wanted to remind you this morning of your great need of God stepping in on your behalf. Because you and I, we were dead, despondent to the things of God, stood guilty and object of his wrath, but God. I want to remind you of God's intervening grace in your life. I want to remind you of your desperate need for it. Because when you and I can understand our great need for it, and we'll become the biggest givers of grace. Who are you to withhold grace from anyone? Who am I to withhold grace from anyone? By the work that God, hey, I know that's tough. Listen to me. I'm not always the most sympathetic person. I know that. Oh, but if the God of the universe who I sinned against would offer me grace and do so through the blood of his son, who am I not to extend grace to somebody here on this side of eternity? Who am I? Who am I? Have I experienced this grace? So just you don't know what I've been through. No, I do not. I'll try my best to sympathize with you. 
I promise. But I can guarantee it wasn't the people you created rebelled against you and desired the, the love of themselves more than they did you, the only thing that could satisfy them, so much so that it would cost your only son to die on a cross. I don't think it's that far. So be people who give grace. Fourth thing, I think this is number four. These men that we talk about in the Reformation, Martin Luther, John Calvin, even Augustine and Thomas Aquinas and John Knox and the Apostle Paul. They were just mere men. They were just mere men. Augustine had a sexual addiction. Luther had a temper. These people were sinful people. Yet God chose to use them in mighty, mighty ways. What does that mean for me and you? That he can use me and you as well. We don't idolize these guys. We're thankful for them, but we do not idolize them. Listen to me, child of God. I want to tell you based on grace and grace alone from scripture and scripture alone that God is for you forever forever. His, uh, his, his love for you will not stop. It is forever. How do I know that? Because Christ died once for all. It is finished. It is done. If you're a child of God this morning, I want to tell you that no matter what you've done with your life, no matter how much of a mockery it is, that the Father in heaven is for you forever. There is no sin that you can commit to make him say, I changed my mind. I regret saving them. No, for you forever. Be encouraged by that. Because listen to me, if there's any kind of shadow of thought that, it, I mean, I've got to keep, I've got to be perfect. I've got to say all the right things. I've got to do all the right things. And what we're doing in our mind is we're returning back to Rome where God brought us out of to say, listen to me, it's not based on your performance. I'm not up here holding a bucket that you're putting coins in. No, what I want to tell you is by the grace of God and the Lord Jesus, he is for you forever. There is nothing you can do as a child of God to make him Turn from you. And it's based on his grace. I want to tell you this morning, child of God, what God has done in salvation is by grace, he took your and mine dead, despondent heart who would not choose him, who would not believe him, and he made us alive, so therefore we will believe upon him. That is a work of grace and grace alone. Now, child of God, you can go to that very throne of grace to get for help in time of need. Hebrews teaches that now the father, whenever we come to him, he doesn't go, oh, what do you want now? He doesn't say, no, I've had enough for you. No, he says, come to me and to my throne of grace for time for, for help in time of need that God will graciously receive all who come to him now and forever. And by grace one day, God will take me and you home, and until that day, he will keep us by his grace, grace and grace alone. He's got you, child of God. Oh, may we say thank you, God, for allowing us to be a part of this story. Hey, do you know, have you believed on the Lord Jesus this morning? 
Here's the good news. You don't have to crawl up those steps on your knees and kiss where I walked up. Or I think Daniel may have sweated up here a while ago. You don't have to kiss where his sweat hit the ground. You don't have to do, know all the right things and say all the right things. Because Jesus and by his grace has made a way for God to become for you forever and made alive so that you can know God, love God, enjoy him and walk with him. All of these hinge on Christ's finished work, all of these solos. Next week we're talking about on the basis of Christ and then we'll talk about through faith alone. Faith alone means just a rest. It means I, I rest in what the scripture has said. Scripture says that Jesus has died for me. Scripture says that grace has made me alive. Scripture says that I can become from children of wrath to be joint heirs. Then I rest. I, I throw myself upon the mercy of God. I trust in it. That's what it means through faith. This morning, will you rest? Would you stop fighting? Stop trying to perform and place your faith in Jesus? We rest in him. Father. Hey everyone, thanks so much for tuning in with us today. Uh, we hope that you enjoyed the message. We hope that the Lord uh, spoke to you um, and we are grateful for you. Uh, like I said earlier, uh, we hope to see you very, very soon in our church uh, gatherings. Hey, if God spoke to you today and you need to speak to one of our pastors, we would love uh, to have a chance just to meet you and to speak with you. Uh, you can uh, fill out a form. It's actually on our website. You can go to crosspointchurch.org forward slash respond. Fill that out and submit it. It will be uh, sent to us and we'll be in contact with you very soon. And we would love to set up a time to meet with you just about things that might be going on in your life, what the Lord is doing uh, in your life and different things like that. Remember to check out our website. It's got all of the information that you need, our staff information, ways that you can connect, and obviously sermons that you can watch. So thanks again, and we hope you have a blessed day.